Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, with COVID-19 cases rising, the Ontario Premier has extended the gathering restrictions for the entire province for another 28 days. We'll talk about the implications of that. The Supreme Court's going to be hearing the province's carbon tax appeals later this week. Is that going to settle the problem once and for all? And U.S. Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg died Friday. Now there seems to be some political play afoot to see if she can be replaced before the presidential election in November. It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. COVID-19 is still front and center, especially because of what's been going on over the last couple of weeks. Uh, We've seen an increase, a steady increase in the number of new cases here in Ontario, uh, notwithstanding the fact that we got warning after warning after warning that if we're not vigilant, well, we're going to have to take a few steps back. And on Friday, the Premier had this to say. We need to take decisive action, as we did in the earlier stages of COVID, to protect our vulnerable and to protect the progress we've made together. That's why, effective this morning, our government is taking immediate action to lower social gathering sizes in every region in Ontario. Informal gatherings across the province will be limited to 10 people indoors and 25 people outdoors for the next 28 days. At least 28 days. Let's uh, put this in perspective. Uh, When those restrictions have been put in place in the past, uh, there were oftentimes extensions uh, put onto them because, uh, well, the numbers weren't where they were supposed to be. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Dr. Ahmad Firas Khalid, of course, a medical doctor and health policy expert. Uh, Doctor, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could join us today. Thank you so much. Happy to be with you. Given some of the numbers we've seen, uh, you and I have talked about over the last couple of weeks, uh, the Premier's announcement on Friday probably shouldn't have come as any surprise to anybody. No, it's not a surprise to anybody. I think we've been hearing for a while the signals coming loud and clear from both public health officials and government officials that the numbers are on the rise and that we need to be on alert. And we're going to continue to see this. I think our messaging has been consistent across the board from the time the pandemic has started that we're going to go through restrictions and relaxations of uh, pandemic control measures throughout uh, until a vaccine or an effective treatment is in place. So, no, this is not really a, a massive surprise to me, actually. But we would, I, I don't want to get overconfident here, but we seem to be doing so well. I, I understand, you know, human nature is, okay, I'm tired of wearing a mask. Or I'm tired of social distancing. But the alternative is not very pleasant. Well, I also want to be careful not to put the entire blame on us uh, not being able to follow restrictions. Surely, Bill, I think I agree with you. That there is a good number of people who are not following the public health interventions. But we also need to look at the system itself and be careful to assess what's going on. We need increased testing capacity. We need to be able to test faster. The long wait lines at assessment centers across the province has been alarming. We need to get a hold of that. We need quicker contact tracing. So if you are testing positive, are we alerting everybody around you or anybody who is possible exposure to you to get tested? And we actually also mainly need an age-appropriate communication strategy. That really is getting at the young people, the older people, to understand what the consequences are of getting COVID-19. I think I think we're a little bit relaxing now on like how dangerous this virus can be and its consequences. Well, we heard those comments from some of the folks that uh, that you know they stuck microphones in front of last week. I'm, I'm sure you heard, Doctor. We had 500 cars just around the corner from my, where I am right now in Ancaster. Uh, that's not social distancing, but but there's this uh, sense of of of, of that's never going to affect me, and if it does, I'll, I'm young, I'll, I'll get over it. And uh, we know that 
is not necessarily going to be the case. I mean, you don't know how it's going to impact each and every one of us. Uh, COVID fatigue, I guess, is the is the expression I'm hearing an awful lot these days. But uh, I guess, and your your point's well taken. I mean, I know that uh, you know that you can't just point to to the public and say you know, it's all your fault. Uh, we haven't been testing as much as we probably should have been, and I think, I think the government's kind of dropped the ball on that one. Uh, and, and as a result now, we've seen those numbers go up. You're, you know, as you mentioned, the lineups are longer and longer at testing sites right now uh, because we don't have the capacity. Yeah, I worry about that particular point about the long wait lines. I mean, yesterday, Sunday, we've tested remarkable numbers. I think we processed 40,000 tests in one day, which is incredible uh, accomplishment. This is my concern is when I go, same as the Ancaster, where you see the long lines. When in Toronto, when I go around just to check how bad are the lines at assessment centers, we're looking at hours. People are waiting almost three hours, two to three hours to get a test. So if you're somebody who thinks you might be exposed, you're not sure, and you go to an assessment center on your lunch break for work because you're regular back to work and you see a three-hour line, your immediate action is going to be, okay, I guess I'm just not going to get tested. I don't have the time for it. We can't afford that. So we need to be testing more. So the increase in the numbers are A, because we're processing more tests, but B, moving forward, we really, really need to be making sure that people are not waiting hours to get a test. Well, I mean, that happened last week with, uh, well, conservative leader Aaron O'Toole, uh, who was waiting in line. He actually got turned away, I guess. He waited for hours and hours with his family because there was a concern about that, and he ended up, I guess, the next day ended up getting tested, and it turned out to be a positive test, so he's in isolation now. Uh, but I'm hearing that from more and more people that said, you know, I waited and waited, and I just, I don't have time. I got other things to do as well. What, and I know that you've told us that there have been some, some, a lot of work and some innovations about testing. Uh, a lot of people, I think, are afraid to get tested because they don't want to have that, uh, you know, thing stuck up their nose. But there's other ways to do this. Uh, but is, is there a way that we can ramp this up to the degree that we probably should to, to increase our comfort level? Yeah, I mean, the big one now is everybody looking at is an at-home testing. And we have seen, we're seeing trials of that. McMaster University is running currently a study at the Pearson Airport where people are getting tested at point of entry, so when they land. But they also take the swabs home and they uh, sort of send them in uh, a few days later to keep. And so that we need to continue doing that. I think we need to do more of that. I don't think it needs to be just limited to the airport. But like any test, I think this is the part of our strict health regulations. We can't just roll out things. Um, very fast. We need to make sure they work and we need to make sure the population health is at stake here. So we, they have to be safe and they have to be tested and verified. So that takes a little bit of time for us to make sure that happens. But I think if we increase capacity at those assessment centers, we probably will get the line much shorter than its long wait times. And, and, and to me, when I see long wait times, as much as I'm frustrated by our lack of capacity to test more, it also reassures me that the public is understanding the importance of this virus and the seriousness of it, and that a good number of people are actually getting out there and getting tested. Uh, so that's, a, in a way, in a po- I'm trying to put a positive twist build to something that's very negative. <laughs> not, not at all. I think we have to, you know, have the glasses half full attitude, but at the same time, as, as you've been mentioning and everyone else has, we have to be vigilant about this. Uh, I got an email the other day, uh, Doctor, that I wanted to bring up to you because I, I frankly didn't know the answer to it. Uh, listen to the conversation that you and I did uh, late last week. Uh, and the, the question is quite simple. I'll just boil it down here. Uh, since we're heading into flu season, uh, she asked, uh, what's the difference uh, between the flu and COVID-19? In other words, how can I tell if I have the flu or COVID-19? And I, I, I know the symptoms uh, are, are very similar, aren't they? 
This, this are very similar. And it's funny that this question is coming up again because this was exactly the same question we were dealing with back in March and April. So, yeah. Uh, and, and I think this is gonna, we're, we're going to see more and more and more of this as we move forward. Well, you know, they are very, very similar. The difference is that the incubation period, for example, is different between COVID and flu. So flu, if you get the virus, you're going to see from time of exposure to when you first develop symptoms, one to four days. But with COVID-19, it can be to 14 days. Uh, average percentage of people who get hospitalized for flu is only 2%. Well, if you get COVID-19, you know it has much more serious consequences. So it's about 19% of people who get COVID-19 right now are getting hospitalized. Uh, and also the, the number of how many people would get infected on average is about 1.3 for flu, while COVID current number is about 2 to 2.5. So that's in general like epidemiology of how it looks like. But in terms of how it, the disease or the virus can look if you get it, yeah, similar symptoms, so cough, flu. Uh, and this is why we're urging everybody who thinks they have the flu to reach out to a healthcare provider and let the healthcare providers or the experts in this matter really provide that assessment immediately whether that person should get tested. My, my suspicion is that now most people are getting tested if they're in doubt uh, because it's, it's rather you just be sure that you don't have it than worry that you might have it. So I guess the ultimate answer here is get tested. If in, if in doubt, go and get tested or call your physician or something and, and, and go down that road. Don't, don't just leave it to chance. Don't leave it to chance. And, and I think, you know, most people now, if they have a cough or runny nose, their immediate impulse, I mean, that's literally what COVID-19 has done to all of us. It made us a little bit paranoid, uh, is immediately get tested. I don't know anybody who now who doesn't have a slight fever, slight cough, that's not being like, okay, I need to go and figure it out. But, you know, also, you know, flu, coronavirus and the flu both have fever. They both have fatigue symptoms and cough. Uh, the sneezing is not common in either one. So the symptoms are similar. Uh, so that's why I think it becomes interesting to make sure that we have testing capacity increasing. As flu season comes around, we're going to see more people wanting to get tested. And lastly, Bill, we are seeing lower numbers of flu this year so far, mm -hmm. which tells me that, you know, people are because we're upped up our hygiene practices and our cleaning mechanisms, I won't be surprised, this is not out of evidence, this is my speculation here, that we might actually see across the board lower rates of flu this year. Interesting uh, that that might actually happen. I mean, if, if everybody's following the precautions, I don't know that any virus can impact it. But, I mean, it's going to happen. I mean, people are still going to get it anyway, which is why the flu shot is always a great idea, but maybe more so this year than, than in previous years, simply because of what's, what else is out there at the time. Are you concerned when you see these numbers, doctor, about the impact that it's going to have on the system? Uh, and by that, I'm talking about hospitals as well and long-term care facilities, et cetera. I mean, it was it was devastating to long-term care facilities in the springtime. We don't want to go down that road again. But have we made adjustments uh, to accommodate uh, these these increased numbers? There is a massive, uh, this is a great question, Bill. There is a massive amount of money now being invested by Canadian Institute for Health Research on long-term care centers. And they're trying to figure out in a very rapid speed how to solve that disastrous problem that happened. Uh, so the work is definitely undergoing on that front. Uh, in terms of our hospital capacity, our system has shown to be resilient, adaptive, and willing to handle the beating. So uh, the number of hospitalizations right now are, are lower than we expected. Our ICU units can handle more cases if need be. So I don't think I'm as concerned in terms of our health system's ability to cope with this. I think we've shown to be a resilient in the highest peak of the crisis. So. Uh, we just need to keep a close eye on it and make sure that we're always, always at continuous time building that capacity at the front lines of the health system. And now, actually, you know, Bill, that the conversation has changed. 
it's no longer about whether the health system can maintain, uh, can sustain this. Now we're looking at the educational system. I feel like the narrative has changed. We shifted from talking about the healthcare workers being the heroes, which they continue to be, to now the teachers, I believe, are the forefront of who are trying to fight this battle because they're under a lot of stress. And my concern now well, is our educational system will collapse very soon. Well, and there is the concern. You know, the the shutdown that occurred, of course, in the springtime was, was devastating to the economy, but necessary, obviously, to, I think, get the message across about stopping the spread of the virus. Are, are we anywhere near uh, that sort of thing? I know we've, we've talked about, you know, reducing the number of gatherings, et cetera, the, you know, which is uh, not that much of an impact. I mean, we shouldn't have been doing a whole lot of that stuff anyway. But uh, when you start talking about shutdowns, school shutdowns, business shutdowns, and things of that nature, is is there a threshold that, w- that we're close to that, that might indicate that that might be an option for governments again? I think that is on the table, and I think Ford made it exceptionally clear that everything's on the table, including a back into a lockdown. Uh, but a recent poll showed that 75% of Canadians would approve a widespread shutdown of non-essential services if the cases reach another peak like they did in the spring. So, uh, you know, we know that people are understand on lockdown, it might happen any day. Uh, in, in a weird way, Bill, I think people are preparing for it. I see people are like, you hear sometimes conversations like, well, in case I go in a lockdown, I'm going to go buy gym equipment. I, I'm going to make sure I still have stuff in my apartment. So we are prepared mentally for a possible lockdown. Now, whether it will happen or not, or when it will happen, I think that's all going to depend on the numbers and keeping a close eye on it. As numbers, uh, keep, as data keeps coming in, I think the government will be making decisions on a daily basis whether and how that lockdown will work. I don't suspect, this is a, a speculation here, that we're going to go into a complete lockdown like we did before. If anything, I think we'll be shutting down uh, on a much smaller case to see how the numbers play out over time. Well, I know there's another increase. I guess we'll get the official numbers on that uh, just a little bit later this morning. But uh, the, the increase was less than it has been the last couple of days. Is that an indicator that maybe we are finally waking up and getting the message and say, okay, we got to get back to basics here? Yeah, I agree. I think that, you know, like I said, always, it's going to be waves. It's not going to be one strong wave. We're going to go up and down. And when we go up, we're going to figure out ways to lower that wave down. And so this is exactly us being reactive to what's happening. This is why it's serious when we say it's alarming or that we're ringing the bells. There's a reason why we're saying this, because we're really, nobody's trying to scare anybody. What we're trying to do here is like curb the numbers and make sure we don't get back into lockdown. Nobody wants a lockdown. Uh, and so I think that's what everybody's trying to do right now. The uh, the elderly uh, and the vulnerable were the ones that most heavily impacted, of course, back in the springtime when we first dealt, started dealing with this. Uh, the demographic has shifted considerably, Doctor, as you've looked at some of the numbers over the last couple of weeks. And I know I know high school and university students are getting a little ticked off right now, saying, hey, you're blaming us for this whole thing. Uh, but that seems to be where a, a good number of the new cases are coming from. How do you get the message across to that demographic that, that, that they have to be part of this as well? You're going to laugh, Bill, but I'll say get on TikTok because it, okay. be, it seems to be the, the, the forefront of what's capturing the younger demographics' attention. And I actually don't mean that lightly. I am, I'm serious about that comment. I think that's part of our knowledge translation effort. We need to be, be thinking more creatively about how to approach that demographic. I'm not putting the blame on them. I think we just our communication strategies are simply not working. Uh, I think those, that demographic is very keen to be on TikTok and Instagram and other social media platforms. How much are we doing there to actually address uh, or reaching out to them through those fronts? We need to change the narrative and we need to hire people uh, who are creative in that domain to understand the younger demographic and how to appeal to them. I think pamphlets, online websites, newscasts, 
are not the way that they get their news, right? Like, mm-hmm. think of your children and other people's children. Where where are they most of the time when they're trying to capture the latest news? They're on their phone, and most often it's either Instagram or it is TikTok now. So we need to get ahead of that and figure out a way to communicate that message over in those platforms. Great advice. Doctor, as always, thanks so much for this. Great talking with you again today. Same to you. Have a good week. Take care there. Dr. Ahmad Khalid, of course, a medical doctor and health policy expert. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. It's uh, back to court for the uh, federal government and uh, their federal carbon tax. Uh, The Supreme Court of Canada is set to hear appeals in three separate cases to determine if the federal tax is constitutional or if it encroaches unacceptably on areas of provincial jurisdiction. Now, you may remember that uh, the province of Ontario and Saskatchewan uh, appealed to this, and they lost uh, to the federal government. The Alberta Court of Appeal actually ruled that the carbon tax was unconstitutional. So uh, we don't know what's going to happen right now. We do know that this is going to be heard over the ne- a couple of days this week, including submissions from at least seven provinces, the federal government, the Assembly of First Nations, and nearly two dozen interveners that include provincial utilities, environmental groups, and unions. So it's going to be a little crowded in there for the next little while. So what's going to happen? Let's uh, bring uh, Steve Applin into the conversation, publisher of Emission Track, which monitors CO2 carbon dioxide emissions from energy. Uh, Steve, welcome back to the program. Good to have you with us today. Always great to be with you, Bill. Steve, is this going to settle this argument once and for all? Probably not. The main argument is, uh, is uh, carbon tax effective in addressing our environmental problems. I'm quite critical of the way that the federal government has approached this. I'm, I'm not uh, across the board opposed to a carbon tax on principle. It can raise money, can raise money for, uh, for, for projects that, that will help uh, reduce carbon but the way that has been approached, uh, there's a sort of a uh, there's a sort of a misconception that it will compel behavior. So if we don't want people to heat uh, their homes with uh, fossil fuel, we'll just jack up the price and then they'll magically switch over to to uh, uh, non-emitting sources of energy. In Ontario, for example, that's that's a, a laughable proposition. Natural gas costs uh, four cents a kilowatt hour. And uh, grid electricity, its only competitor, which is which is five times cleaner. So you would expect that people would be uh, uh, rushing to uh, heat electrically just to, just to, to clean up the environment. Well, it costs five times. It costs six times as much, as according to my last bill. Uh, so unless you address, unless the carbon tax addresses that price differential, which it certainly doesn't, uh, there's not going to be any prospect at all of of cleaning up our home heating. So that's just one example. Yeah, the other is this, and, and this is maybe one of the reasons why this has gone on as long as it has, uh, the philosophical. I mean, let's face it, you know, when governments started looking at programs like this, whether it's going to be carbon taxing or cap or trade or variations on either one of those, uh, there's there's the cost of it, which is obviously important to you and me and everyone as consumers. Uh, the other is how effective is it to actually, you know, attain the ultimate goal here, which is to make for a better environment. Uh, is is there an argument for that, for, for this carbon tax? Well, that's that's just it. If uh, if if the proponents of the tax were to look around the world at jurisdictions that have actually brought this in, I mean, they they have uh, to to their credit, they have uh, made the attempt to uh, examine jurisdictions that have brought in a carbon tax or cap and trade, some sort of carbon pricing. It's just uh, there are big glaring examples where this has just proved completely uh, ineffectual. And I'll give Germany as an example. Uh, Germany is a poster boy for for the sort of what you would call the, the environmental approach to uh, addressing climate change. They've brought in more wind and solar than any jurisdiction in the world. 
Uh, they've got uh, carbon pricing in the form of the ETS, the European Emission Trading Scheme, and their electricity emissions, which all this addresses, this addresses only that, uh, are as high as they were when they started, the 500 grams per kilowatt hour, which is, which is 20 to 30 times uh, what we have here in Ontario. Uh, we're, what we're doing works. What they're doing it doesn't work. And, uh, the, and the price of carbon over there has, has had no effect on it. Which begs the question, then, what are we going to do? I think, I, I, I'm not going to say it's unanimous, but I think the majority opinion in the country these days is we need to do something here. That, that, that seems to be the consensus that I'm hearing anyway, Steve, uh, whether it's cap and trade, whether it's carbon tax, or maybe it's going to be carbon tax, but not this kind of a program or variations on that. Uh, and I, I don't hear too many people putting their hand up and say, I have a better idea. They just say, well, I don't like this one and I don't like this one. And that's, that's not really getting us anywhere. No, that's true, that, and and that's well. It's 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 kind of devolved into a <clears throat> partisan argument. So it, much of it has to do. Much of the opposition has to do with who has imposed it. So people who don't like the liberals, well, it was the liberals who brought this in, so they don't like that, and that's the reason, and that's kind of where how they're running with it. Uh, you're and you're absolutely right. There's uh, there's there's a there's a, uh, a shortage of of ideas out there that are that are uh, you know for credibly reducing the emissions and. Uh, credibly bringing us towards our Paris targets, which are really fast approaching. We've got 10 years to do this, and we're making no progress whatsoever. So, uh, well, the, and the energy minister said that on the weekend. He says, it's, it, unless we start ramping up things like nuclear power and things like that, we're just not going to attain those targets. That's all yeah. there is to it. That, that's correct. And, and the minister is right, and that sort of touches on, okay, what is the put the hand up and, 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 and offers an alternative, that a, a credible alternative that gets us there. Well, that is the credible alternative that gets us there. Uh, there's uh, if you if you we have to electrify. There's no there's no uh, uh, disagreement about this. Even between me, like I'm a strong pro nuke, as you know, and yeah. somebody who's who's a strong anti nuke. There's no disagreement between me and that person over uh, over the fact that we would have to electrify uh, processes that are currently fossil powered. So we have to electrify cars. We have to electrify heating. It, it's just the question. The, the only argument is how we get there. Well, the evidence. As far as I'm concerned, anyway, is pretty strong that it's got to be the, that electrification must be done on the back of nuclear. You can't just uh, willy-nilly expand hydro because that's a major. You know, you've got geographical constraints, and wind and solar have their uh, have their uh, deficiencies as well. The only thing that has been proven to work is nuclear, and uh, I, I commend the minister for actually saying this. And it's, uh, it's uh, very refreshing to hear, especially a liberal minister, being this upfront and, uh, about it. Yeah, it uh, it caught a lot of people off guard, but uh, I think it laid the groundwork for what's going to have to happen next. Because I mean, we're going to start looking at those numbers, and it's it's one thing to embrace this and say we have to we have to do something about the environment, we have to do something about climate change, uh, but uh, you know, putting rubber to the road and saying how are we going to do this. I mean, everything you talked about is is. Uh, I think naturally agreed upon. Yeah, I think you know everybody thinks we should be driving electric cars in fifteen, twenty years into the future. Uh, but at the same time, uh, you know what's what's going to happen with everything else? I mean, as I think you mentioned to us last year when we were having this discussion, uh, the most uh, progress I think we've made about improving the environment was to stop burning coal. Well, that didn't have anything to do with carbon pricing. That was just you know it's it's polluting the air. Let's get rid of it, uh, and that's that's it's done its job. Uh, there are some people, obviously, including the guy in the White House, that don't seem to understand that, and they still want to burn coal. So we've made the right moves, but is is a tax actually going to be, as you say, an incentive to start doing things differently? 
exactly. I mean, you've got, uh, you know, here in Ontario, we've got uh, very clean electricity. There's a whole history behind that, as you alluded to. Let's go to another province. So let's go to Saskatchewan or Alberta. Alberta is the king of them all. Alberta, in Alberta, as an electricity consumer, you've got no choice. You, you, uh, you're, you know, you're running your computer off electricity. Well, a carbon tax that says, you know, Bill, stop using, stop using carbon. You have no choice. You've, you've plugged your, your computer into the grid, and it's, you know, the grid supplies the electricity. You don't have the, a choice of saying, okay, I'm going to take my, uh, I'm going to unplug my monitor from the coal power outlet, and I'm going to plug it into the wind power outlet. Electricity doesn't work like this. No. So uh, putting a carbon tax to incent, to encourage consumers to, to change their behavior, is not going to have any effect whatsoever on electricity. You've got to back up. You've got systemic changes that you've got to make to your electricity grid, and that, that's where the, uh, the the policy focus needs to go. I mean, what's the best way to uh, stop making electricity with fossil fuels in Alberta, for example? They make 90% of their electricity with fossil fuels. Uh, how do you change that? How do you switch to yeah. There's the question. Steve, we're just about out of time on this one. Uh, so I guess to answer my initial question, uh, no, it's not going to be settled this week. Uh, we had a long way to go on this. Uh, more to come on this. Thanks so much for the time today, Steve. Always a pleasure, Bill. Thank you. Steve Applin, of course, uh, publisher of Emission Track. So what is going to happen in the courtroom, and, and what kind of arguments are they going to hear, and what's the outcome going to be? Uh, I want to bring uh, pr- Professor Stuart Elgie into the conversation from the Faculty of Law, Common Law Section, and Director of the Institute of the Environment, and also Chair of the Sustainable Prosperity at University of Ottawa. Professor, thank you so much for the time. Uh, glad you could join us on this uh, very busy day. Uh, your perspective, uh, Professor, on, on what's going to be happening. From what I read over the weekend, this is not whether or not the carbon tax is a good idea or a bad idea. This is really a, about jurisdiction, isn't it? Yeah, the only issue before the court is who has the power to price carbon under Canada's constitution. Uh, the federal government and BC say the federal carbon pricing law falls within federal power. Ontario, Saskatchewan, and Alberta say it doesn't, that climate change is a matter of provincial authority. And you're right. This case is not about whether carbon pricing is a good policy or not. And in fact, um, in the case, the provinces accept that carbon pricing works, that it's the lowest cost way to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, which is what all the evidence shows. They just argue the federal government can't do it. Which is interesting, uh, because initially, of course, uh, well, some of the comments anyway from some of the elected leaders in, in the provinces that are challenging this uh, didn't like the idea at all. And, and you know, we, we, you understand the politics of this. You understand the background of this, too, that carbon pricing was actually a small-c conservative idea. Uh, it, it's really market-based. and But, but again, that's, that's a moot point as far as this discussion is concerned. Uh, so it's an important point, right, that it really yeah. Yeah, the idea of, of if you're going to address climate change, all the evidence shows that pricing is the lowest cost way to do it. It's the way that's most consistent with growing an economy and generating jobs, and it uses the market. So you're right. Originally, it was an idea that came from conservatives. And if you look around the world, people like Angela Merkel, um, even Boris Johnson in the U.K. are conservatives. They advocate carbon pricing. The original carbon pricing laws in Canada were all brought in by right-of-center premiers in B.C., Quebec, and Alberta. 
And so it used to be that this was a conservative idea. Somehow it's been called a liberal one, and it's we need to kind of get past this political polarization in Canada if we can get on with dealing with the problem. Well, it seems as if for the lawyers who've gotten over it, Professor, as you say, they've, they've admitted, I think even in their briefings in Ontario and Saskatchewan, they said, yeah, it's not the principle that we're involved in. It's, it's again, who's allowed to do this. Uh, it's it, it's not splitting hairs. It's going to be a very difficult thing for the for the the people that are making presentations here to to kind of skirt around that issue and talk about what's going on because the argument that the federal government made when they initiated this program, if I recall, was that while well, the provinces weren't doing enough or they weren't doing anything, so we're stepping in and we're going to take over here. Yeah, I think the federal government from the start has said that the provinces are all doing something, and a few provinces are actually doing a fair bit. Um, you know, B.C., Quebec, um, at the time, Ontario, um, and even at the time, Alberta, back in 2016, were, were taking significant action. And so what the federal government deliberately did in, in bringing in this law is it used a backstop or an equivalency that said, we're just going to set a national minimum standard that says everyone has to do their part to reduce emissions. And any province that has in place its own um, effective carbon pricing law, they can take over. They can have their law take effect. They keep all the revenues in that province. They're taking basically the same approach they took to healthcare, setting a national minimum standard to ensure that every part of the country is doing its fair share. So they didn't actually ever intend to take it over. They, just, they intended to take this healthcare-like minimum standards approach, and that's what they've done. Uh, let's face it, the, uh, the silver bullet that's out there that, uh, that has been talked about is, is the notwithstanding clause. Is anybody going to invoke that? Is that going to be a play here? Well, it's a good question. I mean, in this case, the notwithstanding clause applies to the Charter of Rights. Um, and so uh, this, and, and this, this, is, this actually doesn't apply to the division of powers. You can't um, notwithstanding your way out of dividing powers between the federal and provincial governments. So the interesting thing is there actually is the equivalent on the federal side. There's a long-standing part of the Constitution that lets the federal government override provincial powers, but they haven't used it for decades. So, no, I mean, the issue in this case is whether this federal pricing law falls within what's called the national concern power of the Constitution. So the, the, there's, a, there's a federal list of powers and a provincial list of powers, and on the federal list is the power to deal with matters of national concern. And so the essence of the federal argument is that climate change is a matter of national and international concern. The Ontario-Alberta-Saskatchewan argument is it's not a matter of national concern. It's mainly a provincial issue and falls within provincial power. And they got a, they've got a tough argument there, arguing that climate change is just a local issue since it, it's an atmospheric pollutant that affects the entire world. Um, but, you know, it, there's obviously two different views, and the court will decide who's right. Is this going to be the final word on this debate? Well, it'll be the final legal word on this debate. Yeah. Um, my hope is that for the sake of all of us, it's, it, it puts it to bed one way or the other. I think we've been dealing with this fight going back to Stephen Harper and Dion uh, a decade, and it's really paralyzing Canada's ability to act on climate change, but not just act on climate change, to position our economy to compete in a low-carbon global economic future. I mean, other countries around the world that don't have this partisan political polarization, you look at Europe or even Asia, are moving ahead and, and positioning their industries to succeed in a low-carbon world. we got to get past the bun fighting and move on with dealing the issue for environmental and economic reasons. Yeah, my question, I was talking about, yeah, is it going to end the legal argument? The political argument, you're absolutely right, Professor, is probably going to go on for all eternity. It seems well, that way not. anyway. It seems it already has. 
Well, if you look back, I mean, we, free trade may be the, hopefully it's the right analogy. Right? We had a big fight over free trade. Mm-hmm. We had an election fought over it. Obviously, John Turner was a big part of that fight. Yeah. Um, but, but once we had an election, a decision was made, a law was passed, we got on with it, and parties on the left wing and the right wing of the spectrum all said, okay, we're going this way, let's make it work. And, and if you look back over 20 years, pretty much everyone except for Donald Trump agrees that free trade was a good idea, and it set us up for economic success. Same thing with fighting deficits 25 years ago. Big fight. Once we made a decision, we came together as a country. So hopefully we'll do the same here. It's okay to have a big fight about an issue, but once you make a decision, pick a course. We've had a couple of elections on it. Let's stop the the divisive, paralyzing fighting and get on with dealing with what's probably the most significant issue of our time. All the evidence shows carbon pricing is the lowest cost way to reduce emissions. So if you're serious about reducing emissions, you can't be against carbon pricing. It's not the whole solution, as other callers have said. You need other measures like dealing with moving away from coal power or promoting electric vehicles. But around the world, economic authorities agree that pricing has to be the foundation of a serious approach to climate change. And the evidence all shows it doesn't cause economic harm, because in Canada's case, all of the money goes back to consumers in that province in the form of tax cuts. Exactly. Professor, we've got to leave it for there for now anyway. We'll see uh, how this rolls out over the next couple of days. Thank you so much for your time today and your perspective. You're very welcome. Professor Stuart Elgie, of course, from uh, University of Ottawa. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. U.S. Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, RBG, died Friday. Global News' Reggie Cicchini has this report. U.S. President Donald Trump says his party has an obligation to ensure the country's high court names a new associate justice as soon as possible. But the move has angered Democrats who want the vacancy held until after the election. Over the weekend, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi refused to say if another impeachment would be in the works either against the president or the attorney general. An impeachment would halt all Senate activity, making it impossible to vote for a nominee. Several leading Republicans, including Lindsey Graham, have said they will work to bring a vote to the floor, leading to protests outside his D.C. home on Monday morning. At least two GOP senators have said they will not entertain a vote before the election, but did not say if they would vote during a lame duck session before a new Congress is sworn in. Reggie Cicchini, Global News, Washington. Thank you for the report, Reggie. Uh, that's the political angle on this, which obviously is, is dominating the news cycle down in the States. But uh, what should not be lost on us is the immense contribution that uh, that uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg made. Joining us to talk about both is uh, Claire Finkelstein, Algeron Biddle Professor of Law and Professor of Philosophy at the University of Pennsylvania Law School. Claire, thank you so much for the time on a very busy day. I'm glad you could join us for a few minutes. Thanks for having me, Bill. I know that we're going to get into the politics of this. It's unavoidable, obviously, because of the implications. Uh, but what was seems to be lost on a lot of folks, what I'm, I was somewhat saddened about just about the death itself, was uh, the time we need to spend, I think should spend, talking about the legacy of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and the immense contribution that she has made to social justice. That's right. Well, it's interesting. I was reflecting on that this morning, thinking about when uh, Anthony Scalia died, and in the first 24 to 48 hours, people were saying, you know, this is really too soon to talk about replacement. Uh, we need to just mourn the death. And for those of us for whom Ruth Bader Ginsburg meant so much, uh, it has been very difficult because there has been no time to mourn. Uh, people have gone immediately to uh, talking about the politics and the replacement. And yet we all need to mourn her passing because it, it was uh, her legacy cannot be 
uh, overstated, especially for women and girls uh, all across America. We really saw that in the past few years, um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg had taken on almost a, a kind of cult-like status. There were several films that came out about her, and uh, she was really an, an inspiration uh, to women all across the United States. I think those movies really helped to bring her into the lives of many young women uh, who were not aware of her legacy previously, who were not court watchers, uh, and who are from a different generation. Uh, and she's, especially in today's politics, a hugely inspiring figure, uh, and we need time to process what it means for our country that, that she's no longer with us. Absolutely. I mean, in the 1970s, she, she argued six key cases before the court. Uh, she was an architect of the women's right movement. She won five of the six. And I'm and, and, and glad you brought up Scalia because that they were the odd couple on the court, were they? I, I mean, you know, polar opposites when it came to, to philosophies of life and law in many cases, too, but best friends. They absolutely were. And I saw such a poignant tweet from Antonin Scalia's son, Chris Scalia, uh, in which he told a story about how his father bought uh, roses for Ruth Bader Ginsburg and that someone had said to him, you know, uh, why why are you doing that? What what have all those roses, he always bought her roses for her birthday, what have all those roses done for you over the years? It hasn't won you any vote. She still doesn't agree with you. And that Scalia just responded, some things are more important than votes. So the fact that they could have this deep friendship over so many years, despite the ideological differences between them, that is a moment in uh, politics and in friendship and in mutual regard and respect for one another that we just don't see today. The obstacles that she overcame, I mean, her contribution is immense, and, and uh, we, we can't, as you say, Claire, you know, push that aside. That's going to be with us, hopefully, for a long time, but we'll get to that in a second. But, I mean, the die was cast early for her. I mean, she, as she said many times, the odds were always stacked against her. A, a, a woman going to law school, which didn't happen very often, a woman wanting to actually practice law. I mean, she graduated first in her class and couldn't get a job when she graduated because she was, well, as she said, I was Jewish and I was a woman. They, a lot of firms just wouldn't look at her in situations like that. But uh, nothing deterred her. I mean, she was she was just going to do this and she just the, the the attitude that she took and the drive that she had was just incredible well that's right she was incredibly determined and in her law school class there were only nine women and out of what it was a 500 uh, 500 in that class yeah exactly exactly something on that uh, order and it's really extraordinary because i heard a story yesterday about how uh they the class of nine women received a lecture. I don't know if it was from the dean. Uh, I think it was Dean Griswold who said to them, you know, you should think about the fact that you were taking the place of a man. And what, how far we have come since Ruth Bader Ginsburg was in law school. Uh, now, of course, uh, women make up, uh, for most major law schools, 50% of the class. And we really have Ruth Bader Ginsburg to thank for the politics and, and the defense of women, uh, uh, as well as generations of women who she has inspired along the way. 
up for the change in, in atmosphere and the change in opportunities for women. Well, exactly, and uh, and a great sense of humor. I know that she was asked at one time because of that, and, you know, being only the second woman ever selected for the Supreme Court, uh, Sandra Day O'Connor being the first one, uh, and the first Jewish woman, obviously, but because of that as well. And somebody asked, I guess, in one of those interviews, uh, you know, how many women would be enough for the high court to please you? And she said, nine. That's right. <laughs> exactly. And she, she really had the sense that um, she was fighting for women's equality and how all of the many different decisions uh, and issues that she confronted were linked to that equality. Um, that is a, a, a broad vision that she had that really uh, made her a maverick in her day. Uh, interestingly, about her personal life, that much has been made uh, of the very strong marriage that she had. And there's inspiration in that, too, because for so many women of her generation, the thought was, well, you know, you can get married or if you want to be a career woman, um, you know, you could never you could never make a good marriage. And indeed, I think many women still, to some extent, feel that today. Um, but she managed to have it all. Uh, and she really set an example, I think, for so many professional women uh, especially women of my age. Uh, she's the generation of my parents. Uh, and uh, when I look at what she was able to accomplish and over the years watched her career evolving, uh, there's no question that for someone my age who went to law school a generation later, she was an incredible inspiration. For, for so many people in that profession and in so many other professions as well, uh, how nervous are you, how concerned are you that, a lot of what she has done and accomplished uh, could be erased uh, with the selection of, of the replacement for her on the bench. I am deeply concerned about that and also deeply concerned about the institution of the Supreme Court and what is happening in our politics surrounding the Supreme Court. The Kavanaugh hearings were a terrible travesty. Uh, what an ironic uh, juxtaposition to have uh, someone up there as a nominee for the Supreme Court and to have a woman come forward and say, you know, he um, sexually assaulted me and to have the Senate completely disregard what she had to say, attack her. Um, what, what a deep, deep juxtaposition. I can only imagine what it felt like for Ruth Bader Ginsburg to be colleagues with Justice Kavanaugh, and and now what will come next? That bitter partisan uh, battle that we saw play out in the Kavanaugh hearings, um, will that repeat itself? This is gearing up to be an epic battle. Uh, Democrats are waking up to how much the legacy of equality and all the gains uh, from the civil rights movement on are under threat and in reproductive rights, Roe v. Wade may be under threat. They are waking up to that, uh, perhaps in a new way, uh, with even a hint that from Nancy Pelosi today that uh, she, that the Democrats have uh, tools in their, in their toolkit uh, and that they will pull out all the stops to try to make sure that uh, 
it's in fact the next administration that will pick the the next Supreme Court justice. Yeah, well, there are precedents, as we know about that. Uh, you know, the Obama pick, of course, uh, was never even uh, brought to the Senate floor, and uh, of course they totally changed that attitude now because it's a, a, an opportunity for them to stack the court in their favor. Uh, so much more to come on this in, in the days and weeks ahead, I guess. Ruth, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg is, is just somebody who we just have to look at, and quite frankly, probably one of the most remarkable people of our time. Uh, and here's hoping that her legacy is not tarnished because of some of the choices that uh, the president and Mitch McConnell are going to make. Claire, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for your perspective on this. It was great talking with you today. Good talking with you, Bill. Take care. Claire Frickelstein, of course, from the University of Pennsylvania Law School, uh, talking about RBG, the notorious RBG, as she was known in some circles, uh, Ruth, Gator Bins- Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who passed away. And that decision, by the way, about a replacement, you've seen that on the news, of course, over the last 48 hours or so. Uh, and it's going to be quite a fight in the Senate and in the uh, the Congress uh, to try to do something about that. And we'll certainly follow that story. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.